the pastor of one of the largest churches in the United States, demonstrates he's fully outside of orthodoxy, but we will start here. Of all people, Joe Rogan asked a profound question. I'll answer it on this week's Corey Truax Show. brought up a pondering that causes us to ask a question. That's where we will start on this week's show. I will tell you about that large church pastor, Andy Stanley, and his fully unorthodox view on Christian sexual ethics. I recently heard an incredible quote, well, extended quote, paragraphs from T.S. Eliot. I love T.S. Eliot. I want to share that with you. I think that has some real insight for where and when we live. And then we will finish by giving you my annual preview of the Supreme Court session. I found, I've done this for nine years now. I've taken the first episode in October and told you what was coming up. Because if you don't know this, this good piece of trivia, the Supreme Court always starts its term the first week of October. They always have their first hearing the first Wednesday of October, and they meet all the way to the end of June. They take July or they're supposed to, take most of July, August, September off, and then their nine-month term begins. So I'll give you a preview of what is to come after last term's real blockbuster wins like the overturning of Roe versus Wade in the Dobbs case. I'll do all that and maybe a little more as we go on this week's Corey Truax Show. You can find me, your host, Corey Truax, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for my name, Corey Truax. You'll find me there. I also get to serve the awesome people of Beachwood Church at 1030 on Sunday mornings in Greenville. You are invited. We'd love to have you. We just started a brand new series in the book of Joshua, and we would love to have you out as our lead pastor handles that. I'm sure some point in the fall I will continue our Hebrews series, so those are the two things that we are in. Uh, the Lord's been sovereign in that, I think, and that those two eras are in some ways related, uh, especially some of the pictures that the writer of Hebrews gives us, constantly going back to that wandering people in the wilderness, and then Joshua is that generation who actually does inherit God's promise, inherits a land, and there's some really good pictures that we can take along the way. So you're invited, Beachwood Church, 1030 Sunday mornings. Would love to have you. Let's get started with Joe Rogan. I'm not a huge fan. I'm supposed to be, I think, the uh, target demographic. He does well with men in their late teens, 20s, 30s, 40s. I have given you the theory before that I suspect his immense popularity is based on generations of fatherlessness. I think that is our most acute problem as a people group for the West, particularly the United States. Our biggest cultural problem is fatherlessness. And a bunch of 20s, 30s, 40s, even 50-year-old men who never knew what masculinity looked like, they didn't have anything to model it after, in later life have found this Rogan guy, he, he looks like masculinity. He looks tough. He does tough things. He does hard things. He talks about what it's like to be a man. He models some kind of masculinity. And I think that's problematic. He shouldn't be the picture of mas- <coughs> Excuse me. He shouldn't be the picture of masculinity. But I think he largely has become that. That's why I think he's popular. There's that. And he is the... I've only ever watched his interviews. I have very literally never seen any part of Joe Rogan's show that wasn't an interview unless it was just a short clip being passed around the internet. His interviews are the antidote to our version of interviewing and and cable TV where everything is short, 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 short. He will do interviews for two hours and just free-flowing conversation. That is so rare in these days that people, they, uh, they crave it. All right, so that's the setup. That's Joe Rogan. 
he was on his show talking about just like, really, this is some esoteric, abstract stuff, but there's a profound question that gets posed in it. So I'm going to play for you, Joe Rogan, now. Unless something has changed, he is the most listened to person. He has the biggest podcast in the world called The Joe Rogan Experience. You listen to him, and I will comment as we go. I having a conversation with a friend of mine about this yesterday. We were talking about uh, how complex the human mind is and how complex life and society is, but yet there's no real management book. Like, there's no real, there's no document that shows you this is the optimal way to exist, and these are the pitfalls of existing other ways. Man, do I have something to tell you about. Life is complex, the human experience is complex, and you're specifically looking for a book, you're looking for a document that tells you how to flourish and not fall into pitfalls? I got something for Joe Rogan. That, you know, you have these human reward systems built in and they can be hijacked by these various things. And this is the way the human body and the human mind exist optimally. And for whatever reason, there's no real structure that people can follow that's universally agreed upon. You know, like if you, like, say if you're a mechanic, right, and you're working on an engine, like it's, it's, there's very clear documents that show you, like these are the pistons, this is the spark plug, this is the carburetor, if it's not clean, it'll do this, this is the problem with the gas line, and you have to fit it this way and that way. And so you do it all right, and then boom, it starts up and it works. And you can fix things that way, and you can build things that way. We don't really have that for the most complex thing that we're aware of, which is human existence. I have good news for Joe Rogan and his many, many millions and millions of listeners. You actually do. Our maker did not leave us blind. Our maker did not leave us without a guide. He gives the illustration there of a car, and it's got the, the carburetor, and it's got the spark plugs. But no matter the the human experience you're trying to analyze, Mr. Rogan, I'm telling you, there actually is wisdom in the Bible for it. If you're just trying to understand yourself, you can just go to the scriptures and find out that I'm made in the image of God. I am made to take dominion over myself, my life, and the world around me. You get married and it gets complex. I go to my scriptures and I find out what I'm supposed to do as a husband is love sacrificially. And a wife can know that she serves and respects and loves her husband. And if I'm trying to figure out what to do with my time or my money, I go to Proverbs and I can see all of the things that would make me foolish. I can see slothfulness is not for me. I can see that overspending and not thinking ahead is not for me. Those don't lead to flourishing. Those will, as his illustration, those will dirty up my carburetor and things won't run right. I'll go over to the book of James or in Proverbs and I will learn how to talk to somebody. I will learn that a soft answer turns away wrath, and so I don't want to be a cantankerous person. I'll find that the way to be a human, the proper way to be a human, is not to let my temper run myself, because I'll learn that an angry man repels people. I'll learn, if I just read through the, the scriptures, in particular, I'm thinking the Proverbs here, because he specifically is asking a guide for the human experience. Well, man, the Proverbs is rich with some universal truth. Like, man, you don't want to do things without counsel. It's dangerous to go make big decisions without reaching out to other wise people and getting their feedback. You should do that. 
when you're having trouble with your kids, you can go to the scriptures and find your your heart in discipline and your method of, of discipline. I mean, there's just wisdom all over the place. And yeah, th- listen, the human experience is complex. I suspect raising kids is super hard. I have not found marriage to be super hard, but I bet it is. And for all I know, maybe it will be. But those are hard things. And I don't know how people are doing them well without some kind of guidance in the manual we've been given that is Scripture. I I know what kind of imagination people can have on how to organize their, their neighborhoods and their people groups, their cultures, what kind of art to consume and make. And it leads to destruction and sadness, depravity, and... But I, I have something to guide me. So I, I just want to toss it out there. I won't spend any more time on it. I think it's a profound question. And if you have Joe Rogan people in your life, I think it's a good thing to bring up. You know, Rogan the other day was talking about how he wished there was a, there was a manual for the human experience. Man, I, have you thought about how, like, this, I, I would use Proverbs on this. Have you thought about how Proverbs is like that? It's a manual for the human experience. And if you want to get deeper than just the manual of what to do and what not to do, if you want to have a flourishing life, you want to know you want to know your meaning and your eternity. I mean, this book offers a ton of wisdom so that you know who you are, what to do, and what your goals are. So Rogan brings up a profound question. We have an answer to it, and we need to be quick uh, to give that out when the occasion arises. You're listening to The Corey Truax Show wherever you find podcasts. You can give me feedback on that or anything else you hear today at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com, CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com, or find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. It is Corey Truax. Let's go to Atlanta. I don't physically mean go to Atlanta. I mean, let me take you there in uh, in your mind to the, I think, second or third, second or third largest church in the country. I think it's 11 or 12 campuses down around the Atlanta area. It's called North Point. It is hosted, excuse me, it is pastored by, well, maybe my first word was correct and that was a Freudian slip. It is pastored by Andy Stanley, who's been causing all kinds of problems over the years with his theological muddiness. Recently, he had a conference at his church that platformed two homosexual men. It was a conference about Christian ethics and sexuality. And then the next Sunday, he was going to do his big sermon on sexual ethics. Very uh, tellingly, in my opinion, the North Point online website showed the following graphic, I will tell you about, if you tried to broadcast the sermon. If you wanted to go do what they do every Sunday, which is put the sermon out there on their website, on their YouTube channel. If you wanted to go watch online as Andy Stanley gives his now definitive doctrinal statement, his sermon on sexuality, if you wanted to go watch it, you couldn't do that. And then uh, there's no telling. Now we, we, I think we know why. Because while the sermon audio is not readily available or high quality available, it does appear some people surreptitiously recorded it and are trying to put it out there, but those recordings are not super high quality. I can give you a summary of what he said, and of course he doesn't want people to hear it. I'm going to give you that summary, and then I want to correct it. He started just fine, as he often does. This is why Stanley's dangerous. He's one of the more compelling and interesting communicators. He's, man, let me stop and say that. So talented. Just as a guy like me, who has made most of my life out of talking. It's 
I don't mind saying, I don't think it's an arrogance thing just to say, the Lord gave me some gifts. One of them was formulation of language, a control over the words I know, that I can be didactic and just toss out idea after idea, create conversation. That's my thing. And as a guy who thinks, I do it pretty well, he is talented. The guy is a real wordsmith. And in that, in, in that talent, you can use it for good, for the upbuilding of others, or you can use it for evil and twist your words and be surreptitious. And I think in this, in this sermon, he was more the latter. He twists and turns and obfuscates so as to not provide the clarity that we need. Because the, the Christian sexual ethic is clear, and we, we don't have to obfuscate about it. We just declare it. Sexuality is for one man and one woman in marriage forever. End of sentence. Now, then the, the messy stuff comes up, divorces, things like that. We'll talk. But what is the standard? What's the biblical standard? Sexuality is one man, one woman in marriage forever. Marriage is defined as a lifelong union between one man and one woman. And th- therefore, your desire for anything else, someone's sexual desires for anything else, fornication, pornography, homosexuality, anything else, is an ungodly desire. The desire itself is an ungodly, sinful desire. The same way that some man might struggle over wanting a woman who's not his spouse, his desire for that woman that's not his spouse is sinful. And he should be warring against the sin in him. To quote whoever that is, John Owen, A.W. Tozer, Spurgeon, whoever said it, be killing sin or it will be killing you. The man who is lusting over a woman who is not his wife needs to be putting that to death in him. And therefore, every other sexual temptation, including homosexuality and fornication, pornography, needs to be getting killed in us because there is one, exactly one, I'll say it again, one context in which sexuality is ordained of God and it's blessed by God. And that is in marriage between one man and one woman. Now, I gave you... My conclusion before I gave you the lead up, and for that I apologize. Here we go. From Andy Stanley's sermon, he says, We believe what we've always believed. We believe uh, and teach, I'm giving you a paraphrase of the, the transcription. We believe and teach that, uh, now i got to find it. Uh, we teach that uh, the New Testament sexual ethic, that from middle school to high school to college, everywhere around our, uh, around our church, whether it's a straight or a, a gay person questioning what we say, if you're going to follow Jesus and you're figuring this out uh, and you struggle with your identity, man, he could, could you just say what you want to say? And then he says, if you're going to follow Jesus, here's what it looks like to follow Jesus with your sexuality. Uh, three statements. So here's just three statements. Number one, honor God with your body. So he just says here, if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit's in you, so don't sin sexually. You are sinning with God's temple. So uh, all se- he, he will say, and let me... Let me commend him for saying all sex, all sexual acts outside of marriage are condemnable. They are con- condemnable? Yeah, that's right. That's how you say it. Can, can be condemned and should be condemned. So honor God with your body. That's number one. Two, don't be mastered by anything. He specifies not a porn addiction or a sexual addiction. Don't be mastered by any other person or infatuation or lust. Be mastered by nothing but Jesus. He loves you. He created you. He knows what's best for you. So don't be mastered by your desires. Okay, cool. Honor your Honor, uh, honor your body, or honor God with your body. 
Don't be mastered by anything. Great. Then number three, he said, don't sexualize any relationship outside of marriage. That's everything I just said. Don't do that. Uh, he specifically talks about premarital sex there. He talks about all sex outside of marriage is a sin. So good for him for holding holding to that. Then he makes some... He, he got hit by some people. I wish maybe wouldn't have hit him on this. He made some utilitarian arguments. He made the argument that, hey, all the sex that you've had outside of marriage, has it been good for you or bad for you? Has it led to complications or has it led to flourishing? I don't mind that argument. Yeah, you, you declare the truth first. It's, it's just a command from God. You should follow it because God commands it. But also some wisdom. If you'll do what God's commands, your ways will go better. If you will live your life by God's design, there's better things. And some people went after him for making that utilitarian argument, but I think that's fine. And then he finished here. Uh, a sex is for married people. I'm quoting now. Regarding marriage, just to, make sure every, just to make sure everyone knows where we are. When we talk about marriage, or we talk about and teach about marriage, we, talk, we teach the same way Jesus and the apostles did. Every instruction in the Bible regarding marriage references a husband and a wife, a man and a woman. So, biblical marriage is between a man and a woman. Wow, this is awesome. He says, we don't shy away from that. We don't change the words in order to not offend people. So, so far, so good, right? You would argue so far, so good. I know I would. Now, he continues. Here's what surprises some of you straight people. Gay attenders in our churches, they aren't shocked that we say that. They expect that. They grew up on that. They hoped and prayed for that, that God would change them so they could, they could experience that kind of marriage. He gives some anecdotes about sitting with men who are, he says, attracted to men but wanted families, wanted a wife, wanted kids, but were just never attracted to women. That's his argument he makes. He, he says they're convinced that they cannot live in a biblical marriage. And then he commends some of them for just deciding all right, well, I'll just live single for my whole life. I will live celibate my whole life. I'm not attracted to women as much as I want a family. Or maybe this is a woman saying, I'm not attracted to men, even though I, I don't have the attraction. I, I do want a family. I'm devastated by it, but I will bring, I'll just live celibate. That's his, he, he affirms those people. That category is arguable. The, uh, I, I, I would argue life's not about your desires. I think that's a really Western, post-enlightenment, post-romantic era idea that if I don't want it, I shouldn't do it. What, what the real ethic is, you should do what you're commanded whether you want to or not. And you, you get your emotions to match your mandate, not let your emotions mandate you what to do. But then at, at the same time, if I've got somebody in front of me who is, is willing to abstain from sexual sin, I want to affirm that. Don't, yes, good, good, good. Do not engage in the sexual sin of homosexuality. Don't do that. And then maybe over time work on the other thing. So that's, I, I understand there is, uh, his affirmation of that, of that idea of the celibate person who is experiencing homosexual attraction can get complicated. I know some of you just went, no, it's not, it's not complicated, but all right. I, I, th- I think it is. I'm, I'm the one with the microphone. So, you know, email me if you think I'm wrong. And then here's where he went just totally off the rails. This is now quoting. But for many people, that is not sustainable. So the idea of same-sex attraction, but celibate, just not pursuing the companionship of marriage. He says that's not sustainable. 
oh, we got a problem. Your your desire to sin is is not sustainable to hold to 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 stop your desires. Not to stop your let's not say that stop your desires. Let me say to say no to your desires. You just you have to sin. You have to give in to the flesh. And you're just going to say it from the stage with a Bible, well, probably with a Bible in your hand, or I hope a Bible in the vicinity of where you are. For some people, not sinning is just not sustainable, so they have to sin. That's your argument. He continues. So those people that think it's unsustainable, they choose a same-sex marriage, not because they're convinced it's biblical. They don't think it's biblical, but they marry for the same reason you you do: love, companionship, and family. And in the end, as was the case for all of us, this is the important thing I want you to hear me say. It's their decision. Yeah, it's their decision, Andy, to live in wanton sin before God and will stand in judgment for looking at God's ways and saying, we reject those. You're actually talking about someone here it's, that's even more terrifying, that looks at the biblical not the, well, prohibition on an action and says, but I don't like it and I'm unhappy. And I am going to do what the Bible prohibits because I need to, because I want companionship or love or family. You're talking about that person's not even sinning ignorantly. They're on purpose going after sin with all of their heart. And just says, yeah, what's their decision? And then final paragraph. Well, then our decision is how how we respond to their decision. Our decision as a local church is... How we have how we're going to respond to their decision, and we decided 28 years ago, we draw circles, not lines, and we draw big circles. So if someone desires to follow Jesus, regardless of their starting point, regardless of their past, regardless of the current circumstances, our message has been: come and see and sit with me. This is not new. This is who we are, as we've always been. Okay, you're outside of orthodoxy. If you have membership. In gay marriages, gay relationships, openly living openly gay, gay lives, and you have them as members of your church, using them in volu- in volunteer volunteer capacities, having lead having them lead anything, you are outside of orthodoxy. For listen to me, for similar reasons, not the same reasons, for similar reasons, you are outside of orthodoxy. If you've got a man in your church who is having sex with multiple women not committed or married to any of them, some inside the church, some outside the church. We're talking about just a slutty guy living by the standards of this world. But he says, I, I do love Jesus. I just struggle with my fornication. I struggle with it. I love Jesus. The biblical thing to do with that person is church discipline. It's to warn them against the, the eternal loss of their soul. To tell them, the sin you are in, the desire that you have, it, and that you are giving into, your sin is crouching at the door as it did with Cain and the Cain and Abel story, and it continues to bite you, and you are falling to it. Sin is winning. That is a evidence in your life that there's no spirit in you, that you're not fighting the sin in you, and you warn them one-on-one, and then you warn them in a group, but if they just keep on sinning, you say to them, you cannot come here. You're going to be treated as an unbeliever because we love you, and we're worried for your soul. We need you to know how serious this is, and you are put out of the body. If you want some more details on that, I think it's 1 Corinthians 5. And Matthew 18. I think it's Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5. That's what should happen here. And that's not what they're doing. He says he draws circles. I would argue here this is where, uh, 
I, I sometimes I don't like the people who say this sentence. I think they're too harsh, but I think the sentence is correct here. They're being more, Andy Stanley is being more compassionate than God. He's being, quote, more loving. No one can be more loving than God, being more loving than God. God would draw a line here. He wouldn't draw a circle. He would draw a line out of love. That, that line is, lo- is a loving line and says, if you cross this, you are damning your soul. And so I'm giving you nice, clear, bright lines. Don't cross these lines. They will, they will lead to damage in this life and eternal damnation in the next. Don't cross this line. Instead, come this other way and come into the circle. Come into the circle of grace. Come into the circle of repentance. Come into the family of God. There is a big circle over here. But it is a, it is a cross. It, it, uh, getting into the circle requires you turning, around the, turning away from the line of sin and walk back towards the circle. I don't know. I probably just butchered his... Uh, Illustration. But uh, I would just argue this. If you are in any way, you know anyone associated with Andy Stanley's church, they need to go. That's an apostate church. They are not holding to the sexual ethic. He said a lot of doctrinally correct things, but in practice, in actual on-the-ground practice, the orthodox things he said are not being lived out in practical ways. That's that, uh, what's the word? That grieves me to say. I don't celebrate that. But that's the truth about the second largest church in the country. That idea of making practical the orthodoxy, like putting in daily life what we learn as as doctrine, has been a theme for this show for quite a while now. In particular, we've been doing that with the law over time, the law of Moses over time, that we, we see odd laws about not... Uh, being reckless with the fires you start and damaging your neighbor's field because w- if you do damage your neighbor's field, you're going to be liable for that. And we ask ourselves, what wisdom is there and how do we bring that into the modern day? Well, that might not have happened to you. Someone's reckless fire starting might not have hurt you, but the modern day analog of that might have been someone was reckless, someone was negligent, maybe it was in a car accident, it was getting hurt at work because of someone's negligence. And I, I think about those situations for, for people I've known and for you. Those situations have hard consequences, medical bills filed up. You're often injured while you're trying to respond to those bills or losing wages. And while you're stressed about all that, you're trying to navigate the labyrinth of a process of trying to get justice. I want to say to you this week, don't be scared by that if it happens to you or someone you love. There are people out there to help you. The one I want to point you towards right now is Samuel Harms. He is a personal friend of mine. His name is Samuel Harms, H-A-R-M-S, as in stay out of harm's way. I advise just Googling him. You can also find him at 864-666-6666-664-666-666. His name is Samuel Harms, attorney at law. You'll find him at 33 Market Point Drive, Greenville, South Carolina, 29607. The number is 666-6666. Don't try to do these things on your your own, all right? You, You need help, Samuel Harms can provide some some guidance and some next steps. So reach out to him if maybe that analog has happened to you and someone's fires have damaged your land or you've had the modern-day version of that. Reach out to him, Samuel Harms, at 666-6666. Now, I heard recently one of my more favored writers of, I guess it's not antiquity, of the last couple hundred years. T.S. Eliot wrote that very famed line, uh, this is how the world ends, not with a bang, but with a whimper. He's got plenty of great poems I am a fan of. He was a fairly late-in-life convert to Christianity, and he was already seeing the degradation of Western culture. 
we now live many decades after him witnessing what seems to be the fullness of the degradation of Western culture. I thought he gave a a really prescient illustration that, that is helpful to me as I think about my role here on the back half of my life coming up here soon and what we're trying to accomplish as believers and Christians. Here was his illustration. He said, if you don't tend to your garden, eventually you'll have to clear a forest. And what he's saying there is if you don't tend to your your marriage, eventually it'll be a mess. It'll just be a, a forest full of under undergrowth and trees and trees and things you don't want, and it's just a lot of work to try to clear out that forest. If you don't work on your financial life, if you don't tend to the garden when it is just a pleasant place, then you're going to end up in calamity. And he was specifically talking about culture. He wasn't applying it to your personal life. He was saying, if you don't tend to the gardens of the education system and tend to the garden of the financial system and the government system and the media and entertainment, if you don't tend to their to the gardens, they will grow they'll become overgrown and eventually you have to deal with it. You can't just let it grow forever and you're going to create a much harder job for yourself instead of tending a garden, you have to clear a forest. And clearing a forest is much harder work than tending a garden. Just think about the tools. The tools you need to tend to a garden are that little spade thing and a little bucket, maybe some water. You don't even have to wear gloves for a lot of it. Now think about clearing a forest. I need gigantic machinery. I need big axes, strong men, giant. Now I need giant mechanical trucks and what are those called? Bush hogs? I don't know what they're called. I don't work hard. You need a lot of big machinery to clear out a forest. And I would just argue now, we are in forest clear clearing mode. You might, you, you've picked this up from my demeanor. I much prefer gardening to tend to that which is good but needs maintenance. And we need good gardeners. I am not a forest clearer. And I am, I get uncomfortable with them because I find them often rude. I often find them very arrogant. And uh, come on, guys, for me to say that, that should say something. That if I look at somebody and go, man, the self-assurity on you, oh, that's a lot. I, I, I find them abrasive. The, the people that I think have a role in Christianity, that would be the forest clearers. Just clean out all the filth. I got to look back at them. As I, look, I hope they'll look at me and say, yeah, we're, we're going to need you, man. We're going to need you, the gardeners, to keep things well tended. Okay, but look at us. We're, you need us to clear out the the filth, to, to clear out the, the underbrush. To that end, I have one more thought on this. From what I was reading in that quote, Eliot was talking about like the Church of England. He was talking about the Anglican or the Episcopalian communion, whichever one that was. He was saying the institution was becoming the forest. The institution itself, because it wasn't tended to, like how I might say if we don't tend to the Southern Baptist Convention, if we're not careful with it, then it will, it will grow into a mess. So you got to keep tending to it or it will become a disaster. To that end, that's something I'm, I think I want to just first pray for. I can't work for it really, but I can pray for it. That the mainline denominations in the country would come, come back to orthodoxy. You know all the most incredible buildings for churches... They were, the, they were the Anglican and Episcopal and Presbyterian churches. 
And while there's a bunch of faithful Presbyterians, a lot of that old Presbyterian money stuck with the uh, the Presbyterians that went off the rails, that have endorsed every unbiblical thing you can think of. We are when we were a people. When the now we're I guess we're basically getting back into Christian nationalism, the idea of the country being a Christian country because there's a lot of Christians in it and we're doing Christian things. When that was the case, the Lutherans and the Presbyterians and the Anglicans and the Episcopals were not doctrinally crazy and they were very important. In part because they did have those institutions. They had the literal church buildings and they had the ability to be a, I don't like the word rival here, but it's the only word my mind is giving me. They were a rival to government powers. It was it was legitimate. Uh, an, a big Presbyterian denomination could say, hey, uh, so the government's shutting down. Uh, uh, there's a, an impasse in Congress. Well, we're going to go ahead and put out the press releases. We're going to spread the word. Hey, if you were going to miss a food uh, food stamp payment, if you're going to miss an EBT deposit on your card, come, uh, come on over. We are big enough as an organization that we can absorb for a few months. We can absorb for a while the the needs of our community. And those churches, those networks were so large, that could be nationwide. We can absorb the needs of the community to say to governments, we actually don't even need you to do this. You, have your, you do have a job. We need you to do it. But this other thing, you guys aren't even good at it. You're not good at welfare state, welfare system, but we, the church, we're pretty daggum good at it so that we can give people what they need so that no child goes without a diaper they need, that no child goes without the, the formula they need, and that while we were working with the people doing mercy ministry, we can also provide with the big institutions, with the big budgets, we can say, oh, guys, let me show you how you can stop the cycle of poverty. And that can be evangelistic, but it doesn't even necessarily always have to be to give people the training in life and the skills to not even need us eventually. That's supposed to be the goal of every, of every assistance program. It should be the goal to get the people in the assistance program to a place where they don't need it anymore. Because that's what honor them. That honors their image of God. That they would no longer need somebody. That, by the way, I'm, I am not including in that widows, orphans, physically, mentally impaired by the image of God on them. They are unable to take care, of, take care of themselves and there is no loss of honor in that they can't take care of themselves. And we should. We should. But just for the intergenerational poverty of generations who go one by one by one, don't know how to take care of themselves. I mean that sentence. They don't know how to take care of themselves. All they know is government programs that don't, don't humanize them. The, the government program just wants them to be in the government program their whole lives. We, the big churches, should be able to say, oh, come here, man. We got something for you. Yeah, we want to take care of you. And while we're doing that, let me help you. Let's help break some cycles so that you can do what you've been called to do and flourish. Not be a cog in a government wheel, but to really be you and who God called you to be. You know, the, the orthodox denominations that we have, I'm just going to go with the Southern Baptist Convention, and the Good Presbyterians, which I think are the PCAs. There's the PCA and there's PCUSA, and I can't remember which one went crazy and which one did, didn't. We don't have the budgets, I don't think at least, to do that kind of thing. But man, if you can have a, a cons- conservative here means orthodox, an orthodox resurgence into high dollar denominations that were the Episcopals and the, what are they called? 
the of the Lutherans and the other Presbyterians. I mean, there's a real rival you could have, and that's something I'm praying for is a resurgence of orthodoxy so that we can start tending gardens uh, instead of having to clear the forest. That's how I'll, I'll close that loop with the T.S. Eliot quote. Now to finish. By the way, comments, responses, Show at gmail.com, Show at gmail.com, or on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Look for me, Corey Truex. A preview of the Supreme Court's docket. It should be less eventful this coming summer, you know, months from now, than last summer. Last summer, there were some there were some big rulings, back to back to back. There are four that I want to highlight here, four cases. Of course, the Supreme Court will hear like, it's like 40 cases in a term, but here's the four that I want to watch most closely. Number one, the most important one to me, by far, will challenge something that I have despised for most of my adult life once I found out what it was. It will challenge something called the Chevron Doctrine. Here's the Chevron Doctrine. From a case decades ago, many uh, almost 100 years ago, I guess. The Chevron Doctrine says that when Congress empowers a executive branch organization, so just think of any or, think of any given organization in the federal government, the the federal government empowers them to do a thing. The decisions that that organization makes after that, they they got pretty wide margin on what they're allowed to do. That, that if someone challenges that organization and says, the way you're doing what Congress told you to do, we think it's unconstitutional. The Supreme Court gave deference. They said, you know, the, the Congress wasn't specific enough, didn't, didn't tell them they couldn't do this thing they're doing, so we're going to give them deference. It's Chevron doctrine or the Chevron deference. Here is uh, the, speci- I'll give you the specifications in this case. There is a a law Congress gave out to uh, for the governance of fishing to I can't remember the organization. Let's just call it wildlife the the wildlife uh, administration. They needed to make sure that certain waters were not being overfished, and in that process, they decided, well, we are going to as this federal government agency, we are going to pay for human monitors, human evaluators, they're going to go on the boats with these big fishing companies and they're going to monitor how many fish they get. And it, it, we're going to pay the salary of that person on the boat to do that job that Congress said we were going to do. Congress said we've got to, we, we the wildlife agency, we have to check on the fishing statuses and the way we're going to do that is hire someone, pay them some money and put them on a boat to monitor it. The argument against the wildlife agency is you can't do that. You can't spend money. Congress actually did not authorize you to spend money in section, uh, Article 1, Section 8. No, no, no. Section 9? Uh, 8 or 9 says only Congress, specifically the House of Representatives, only Congress can initiate the spending of money. So when Congress told you, Wildlife Agency, to take care of this, you could go back to Congress and say, we need you to specify money that we can use, but you can't do it this way because... You, you haven't been given the money to do it. Now, the Supreme Court historically would have said, yeah, they can. They can do it because uh, they were given a job and they got to be able to do it. We're going to give them deference. My hope is that the Supreme Court says to the wildlife agency, you actually can't do that. You don't have the power to make up your own rules. You don't have the power to start hiring people. That would cause, admittedly, major disruption in the federal government. 
but it would begin the process of saying back to Congress, you can't just farm out your job. Your job is to handle the budget and the money. you can't, You got to stop writing laws where you just say, agency ABC will do it. A- agency DEF will do the following. Now, you guys actually got to write laws. You got to legislate. And so it would send power away from the administrative agencies, usually in the executive branch. It would strip them of a lot of power, send it back to Congress where it belongs in the first place. I think that is the most important and potentially most transformative over time case that the court is going to decide. Two, there is a, there's a gun rights case that I actually do think is complicated. There, I can't remember which state is wanting to do, do away with gun rights for people who have been convicted, I think it's, it could be accused, convicted of abuse. So spousal abuse, child abuse. And I would argue if you have been convicted of hurting those you're supposed to protect or hurting the innocent, you are giving something up. You are giving up your right to, in this case, even defend yourself with this particular weapon. You have shown yourself to be the kind of person that cannot be trusted. And in our system of justice, our system of governance, that's what we can do with you is, yeah, we're going to punish you in this way. I could be argued against. I'm not married to that position, but that is that's where I sit. But there's a lot of folks who would argue that's not the case. Um, Of course, if someone is accused, not convicted, that changes the math. I'm specifically saying convicted of that kind of abuse. Uh, But that's something the Supreme Court is going to have to decide. Can we strip the gun rights of someone who is, I think it's convicted, convicted of abuse? Two more. One. Oh, yeah, this is another one that is about stripping the administrative state. Uh, Back in 2009, there was uh, something called the Consumer Protection Agency passed by Congress, just created by Congress, another another agency because we don't have enough of them, right? And that agency was funded, I would argue, unconstitutionally. This is the only agency in the history of the United States that Congress said, you'll get your money from the Federal Reserve. So Congress created an entity and then just said, you guys go do your thing. If you need money, ask the banks. Ask the Federal Reserve for your money. You don't even get your money from the taxpayer. You get it from the banks. No other agency runs that way. Every other agency that Congress creates, Congress has to fund it. And I think this is slam dunk. I think the, the court will strike this down and say that this funding mechanism makes the agency illegitimate and could, li- and could possibly, in a day, shut it down. The agency will shut down. That piece of government will no longer exist. And then Congress, if they wanted to, would have to go back and try to recreate it with an actual constitutional funding mechanism. But man, I tell you, if you get two of those, you get straight a case that straight up shuts down a department of the government, and then another case that says to all the remaining departments and agencies, you can't just make up your own rules. Congress has to make the rules. Then there's some real progress to be made. And then finally, South Carolina's congressional map will be challenged at the Supreme Court. The argument from the plaintiffs is that while we were redrawing our lines in 2020, the state legislature moved a bunch of black voters out of the a Charleston-based district, District 1, and moved them into the Columbia-based district, which I believe is District 5, uh, to dilute, uh, they're arguing, to dilute black voting in South Carolina. The respondent, South Carolina, is arguing, this wasn't based on race, it was based on politics. And politics is a totally legitimate and constitutional reason to gerrymander. 
yes, we moved black voters into the Columbia district because they vote for Democrats. And so now the Charleston district is very friendly to Republicans instead of being kind of a toss-up. And Columbia, a very blue district, just got a lot more blue. But we didn't do that because of race. We did that because of politics. And I think that they are correct. I think the state that constantly votes Tim Scott back into office and was, I think, the first state to elect an Indian woman doesn't have the gigantic racial problems politically that the complainants think we do. But we do have that political gerrymandering. That's what we have. That is our system. If you don't like that, you can try to change that. But the idea that you can just determine that the people who did this did this because they're racist, you don't have enough evidence for that. I think uh, they got to leave our map alone the way it is. There's a lot there on the show today. I'd love to get your thoughts and responses to anything we talked about. You can do that on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, our kind of threads. I don't really go there much, but Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or threads. You can write me there at, or at Corey Truax Show at gmail.com, Corey Truax Show at gmail.com. I'll be back with another new edition of the show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.